Especially the mingling is, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, bless Sorry. you. Thank <laughs> that you. was loud. <laughs> uh, I wasn't holding my cup of coffee, otherwise it w- it would, I would have spilled it uh, everywhere. <laughs> it's Friday, September the 11th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor in a limited and very specific way, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Belgian Road Victim. Our third regular co-host, Molly Quell, has gone into hiding this week after accidentally clicking on an ad on Instagram earlier this week. <laughs> oh yeah, because she got stalked by this. Uh, yeah, she once accidentally clicked on an ad for pens, and yeah. ever since she has been stalked by yeah, ads th- for pens on the internet. <laughs> yeah, basically this is what internet advertisers do. Once if, if you buy batteries on Amazon, you then get about a, a week of uh, adverts for batteries, even <laughs> yeah. though you know you, you don't need any more batteries so by <laughs> the fact you've just bought some. Or if you uh, if you click on a hotel or something on Booking.com, then yeah. you, you get stalked for the rest of your life. Uh, exactly. Are you sure? Yeah. Sure, you don't want to go to uh, uh, Zoetermeer. No, I, I'm yes. sure I don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've never been more sure of anything in my life. But yeah, yeah Molly basically got to, was, was constantly being uh, shown adverts for various types of pants, and obviously there's an endless variety uh, in women's clothing. So, um, and it was quite a startling. <laughs> yeah. it's quite a start. She showed some of the pictures on uh, uh, on Twitter, and it's, 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 yeah, there's a quite startling range of uh, <laughs> appalling and quite and, and quite ugly and shocking fashion. Uh, Items. Yeah, there was not an, uh, an increase in quality. Uh, <laughs> there was not. Uh, no. no, no, no. So, so she's, she's hiding on an island in the in the, in the Wadensee to try and escape uh, <laughs> these online advertisers. I hope it's working yes. for her. And she's now on Ter Schelling or something with her dog. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, she, yeah, she managed to take the dog to Ter Schelling. Uh, yeah. yeah. But apparently there's, there's a lot of dogs on these ferries, Ter Schelling as well. So, so the dogs spent the whole crossing sort of yapping at each other. <laughs> I've never been to Terschelling. Neither uh, have I. I've been to some of the other islands, but not to Or any other island, no. You're not been to, you're not been to Tessel. You must have been to Tessel. Everyone's no, been to Tessel. No, not to Tessel. No, oh my no. goodness. Only the, uh, the the islands in Zeeland I've been to. Yeah. They're, they're not really islands anymore, though, are they? Uh, y- yeah, well, still are. the people who live there still claim they are islands, but... Yeah, lots uh, of people in Urk. Urk claim they're still, they're still an island, even though you can get there by road. It's very weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the, one of these former islands, which is still it's still in their DNA that they are they are still islands. Um, but some... yeah, I think most of the islands in Zeeland are now, technically speaking, peninsulas, but some of them are... Um, uh, separated from the world or, or only connected by by a dam or something. So can yeah. you still call it a, an island? Then yeah, that's uh, that's something that you can uh, debate about. I think yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, so, but and what's happening with the Belgian roads? Uh, what's what, what do you, the, 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 this the, this week? You haven't been on the Belgian roads, but the Belgian roads have come to you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they are, they are coming to me. Indeed, I didn't know they were they were. Uh, I was surrounded by Belgian roads, but apparently I was. Uh-huh. Yeah, because um, if you have been to Delft on the Market Square, uh, you have the, the the beautiful city hall, and mm. uh, a couple of years ago they surrounded the city hall with a special uh, sort of pavement. Um, mm. it, it looks very beautiful, but whenever it's raining, and of course in the Netherlands it rains a lot, uh, this uh, um, uh, th- this particular um, yeah road becomes very very slippery, and mm-hmm. uh, 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 yeah, it uh, often leads to uh, to uh, smaller accidents and sometimes even yeah. uh, much more serious uh, damage. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that um, the material they used is Belgian stone. Mm. So uh, yeah, if you've ever been to Belgium, then you know that uh, yeah they're not very um, good at building roads. Uh, and I assume, yes. uh, or at least I always assume that the, the Belgian road material uh, would also not be of, of uh, uh, terribly good quality. And mm-hmm. uh, indeed, that is the case. That seems uh, yeah seems to be borne out. I guess as well as maybe the the materials that the Belgians uh, didn't use on their own roads. So it's like the, re- <laughs> the, the it was like the reject. It was the you know it, it, was, yeah. the rema- it, was, it was like the remainder of road uh, surfacing. So it was never going to be good. In, in the same way that the Irish you know keep the best Guinness for themselves and export the second rate stuff. 
the Belgians do that with their road with the road building oh. materials. So yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But 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 the Irish assume that the uh, people from other countries will not you know taste the difference between the good Guinness yeah. and the other Guinness. But you know, in terms of of of, of Belgian road materials, I I'm sure <laughs> everybody will will tell the difference. Yeah, well, certainly when they fall off their bikes and and hit it. Exactly, they're, but they're, but luckily they are replacing now the uh, the the Belgian stones. You, do you know uh, with what with which they are replacing it? No, I don't. Is this Scottish the same sandstone? stones? The same stones. Yeah, Brilliant. so um, excellent, yeah. inspired choice. So um, they'll be di- they'll be digging it up all over again next year. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. luckily the, uh, the 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 Delft mustache guy is on top of it. So ah, uh, oh, um, right, okay. Well, nothing can go wrong then. <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> Uh, and you're going to have to explain your job title too, because I have no idea what it means. <laughs> oh, this is just a reference to a uh, quite um, uh, remarkable development in the whole Brexit process. I won't mm. boy, I'll, I'll try and spare you the details, but uh, <laughs> it's essentially what happened was, you may, you may remember uh, previously on Brexit, um, <laughs> that uh, the, the, the British government signed this deal with the European Union, the, the withdrawal agreement, which meant they could leave the European Union um, uh, with an extension period at the end of this year with some kind of terms and conditions. Um, and this was an agreement that was signed and on the dotted line and sealed in law and Boris Johnson used it during his uh, election campaign to say this is how we're going to go forward. Um, and everyone agreed that this was, you know, that uh, had the force of an international treaty and that uh, if you didn't comply with it, you'd be breaking international law. But some of the clauses were a bit of a problem for the British government. So this week they brought in a law in Parliament saying basically they solved the problem. They're just going to break international law. But okay. they, they, and they've actually written that into the in, 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 into the into the bill into the proposed act of parliament to say they're just going to ignore any uh, in, in, international obligations in terms. It's, it's to do with the border of Northern Ireland, but I really can't bore you with those details. We'd be here all day. But but but, but effectively, it's to do with the the the, 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 uh, the free the movement of goods across the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And the British government basically said they they're, they're not going to do what's in the withdrawal agreement. Um, they're going to do their own thing, even though it breaches international law. But the defence was um, that the minister responsible stood up in Parliament and said, we will breach international law, but only in a limited and very specific way. <laughs> so if you ever want to commit a crime, that, 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 that's your defence. You know, if, if, if you stand yeah. with four people too close to each other um, under the coronavirus rules, just tell the police you're doing it in a limited and very specific way and yeah. you'll be fine. Or if you are holding your wedding, then you can also say that you did yes, it in indeed. a limited and specific way. Yeah, yeah. Although um, it's quite unlimited uh, in, in in the case of Fred Kupperhaus's wedding. That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. So interesting development, indeed. Um, yeah. I I read something on the internet about a. Um, uh, speaking of international treaties, um, 50 fishermen from, from Belgium were granted um, permanent and uh, free access to British waters in 1666. Ah. Um, and um, so that could also be one of these topics that could, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, be problematic for the Brexit negotiations. Because, yeah. of course, uh, the United Kingdom wants to have a complete autonomy over their own territorial waters. Yes. Um, the charter was sort of forgotten so one Mm. belgian um uh, seaman or actually one belgian alderman in the in the 60s he um uh, he bought a ship and he just uh, went to uh, english territorial waters hoping that he would be catched up by the royal navy and go to court and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of re-establish this charter from 1666 but it never went to court and um uh, uh government papers that were released in the 90s uh, revealed why it was because the um, attorneys of the uh, of the of the British government said let's not bring this to court because the charter is probably still valid oh. and we will just um, yeah we will gonna have to uh, uh, grant all these Belgian fishermen uh, permanent access to our territorial waters so oh. um, yeah it, if I were a Belgian fisherman then I would definitely uh, Indeed. Tr- try yeah. to uh, bring this back to court again yeah, so the, the, I imagine a lot of uh, Belgian fishermen right now are going to be uh, claiming descendancy of these. Uh, no, it's not guys. even. Or is it, no, is it just apply to all Belgian fishermen? It applies to fifty fishermen from Bruges. Okay. And there's no sp- specification whatsoever. So. Um, right. Yeah, there be- fifty Belgian uh, boats have uh, permanent access. Uh, probably. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
I mean, my next project might be to move to Bruges to then, and just, tro- <laughs> just troll the British government with my drawer. Yeah, buy a boat, yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. So that's a potential source of OPEF for Belgian fishermen um, in British waters. Uh, there's also plenty of OPEF around Princhestach uh, this year, wasn't there, Paul? So to talk us through the OPEF of the week. Indeed. Uh, I completely forgot about it, I have to admit, but next week already it is the third Tuesday mm. of September, and that means Prinsjesdag, the absolute oh. highlight of the Dutch political year. Yeah, uh, year which, which we know as Budget Day. Yeah, we call it Budget Day, but in the <laughs> Netherlands it's uh, known as uh, Prinsjesdag. Um, we will talk about the tradition surrounding the Budget Day uh, a little bit le- further in the, in the podcast, but one of them is the Gouden Koets, or Golden Carriage. Uh, that uh, the king uh, would traditionally use to travel um, the extremely short distance from uh, North Einde Palace to mm. the Binnenhof. Uh, the Gouden Koets was a gift from the people of Amsterdam to Queen Wilhelmina in 1898. It is a, uh, well, gilded monstrosity, um, <laughs> and I think even Donald Trump would find it over the top. Um, I, I don't know, this is a guy who has a gold-plated lift, so I'm not sure. I know, but I think even for <laughs> the taste of Donald Trump, it's a little bit too much. I think yeah. that's my uh, uh, that's what I suspect. Yeah. Um, the carriage became somewhat controversial a couple of years ago because because one of its uh, painted side panels uh, depicts dark-skinned people bowing and offering gifts to a uh, white woman. Um, yeah, who who's supposed to represent? Yeah, who's supposed to represent uh, sort of virginity or purity? Isn't she? So, uh, I thought she was the personification of the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, that as well, I think. So yes, yeah, so, so, yeah, so it's a basis of um, fairly crude iconography of, uh, of slavery, and, uh, and which not everybody or, appreciates, or at least colonialism. Uh, yeah, because 1898, it was of course uh, different times, and um, but now in 2020, it's uh, much frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, the Gouden Koets has been under restoration for years now. Uh, in the meantime, the king used the uh, glass carriage instead, which I personally like much better. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the controversy, it is widely expected, uh, but not yet confirmed, that the Gouden Koets will not be used anymore after the restoration is completed, and that's uh, expected to be in 2021. But this week, uh, there was news uh, surrounding the Gouden Koets. It was announced it will also not be used next year, even though the restoration will be finished by then, um, because it will be featured in an exhibition in Amsterdam. The announcement mentioned the Gouden Koets will be displayed in the museum only next year and not permanently, but that didn't stop a lot of people from creating Ophef. They felt it was just another example of a long list of Dutch traditions being cancelled, especially Martin Bos, who is a provincial representative for Forum for Democracy in Zeeland, uh, made some Ophef. He tweeted, Mm. uh, the winers are victorious again. The uh, Gouden Koets is going to a museum. First Zwarte Piet, then the Moorkop, now Zigeunersaus and the Bamischijf are threatened. Mm. Stop the destruction of Dutch culture. That's what he tweeted. And yeah. that sparked a lot of questions by others in turn, because they were unfamiliar with the threatened status of the Bamischijf. Yeah, I so, think they're also unfamiliar that the Bamischijf was uh, some kind of pillar of Dutch culture. Yeah, is, me neither. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were a lot of questions raised. Uh, shall yeah. we first explain what a Bamischijf is? I think, we, I think we, need to, we need to, yes. It is a typical. I think yeah, it's a, it's it's a typical. I think it's the um, the pinnacle of Dutch uh, snacks, uh, deep fried <laughs> snacks. Uh, it is packed fried noodles, uh, yeah. breaded and deep fried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the name Bami um, originates from. Is, is this from Indonesian cuisine? Uh, Indonesian or Malaysian cuisine, one of the yeah. two. So it's so not, uh, so not really. Well, it is Dutch culture in the same way that. Uh, you know, tulips are Dutch culture because they came from Turkey and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah. but I know from experience that if you order bami in in uh, in Indonesia, then the dish you will get is completely different from the dish that you will yeah. get in the Netherlands. So yeah, they uh, the, the 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 Dutch bami is completely different from the original uh, Indonesian bami. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bamischrijf was uh, trending for the rest of the day. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. Uh, yeah. And also, I uh, usually when you go to a party and they have this um, uh, this plate of, of mini snacks going around, you know, then the, the one thing that's always left uh, at the end are the Bamischrijven. Right. Because I thought nobody likes them. Nobody I personally actually likes them. Yeah. No, I personally like them. Molly likes them too, I know. Um, so I'm always happy with that because that means that there are more snacks for me left over. So Excellent. I ran a poll on Twitter asking mm-hmm. people what they thought, thought about the Bamischrijf. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? 
What with the poll or, or, or what I think about the Bamishaif in general? Oh yeah, you can sell. You can say what you uh, think about the Bamishaif. Yeah, I, I can't remember when I last had a Bamishaif. To be honest, um, I'll have to go and have one again and uh, remind myself if I like it. But in mm-hmm. terms of your poll, um, I think I think I know this. I think did you not uh, get a bit of a, a bit of a Brexit outcome here? Yeah, it was exactly <laughs> the Brexit outcome. Fifty-two <laughs> yeah. percent really yeah. liked it. Forty-eight percent hated it. So yeah, um, so th- 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 this country is just hopelessly polarized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yet, yet another <laughs> item which yeah. uh, polarizes so, the Netherlands. So you look forward to four years now of people arguing about <laughs> Bamisgeven. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And then come to some kind of uh, agreement to stop eating them, and then and then ignoring it. In a, in a limited and very specific way, breaking international snack bar. <laughs> international snack bar rules. I was also just fascinated with this with this argument that putting a thing in a museum was destroying culture. Yeah. Um, that's that, that 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 doesn't that seems to go against the whole purpose of museums to me. But uh, maybe I'm missing a point here. Yeah, you know? I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the the one place to preserve cultural heritage yes. is uh... I thought that was by definition what museums did in this week's news coronavirus numbers are on the rise again budget day figures have been leaked again and refugee numbers trigger bitter recriminations in parliament plus we explain why dead parrots were no laughing matter for a hot air balloon owner the number of positive coronavirus tests in the Netherlands went up by 50% in the first week of September That's according to the latest figures from the RIVM Public Health Agency. And on Thursday, the daily number passed 1,000 for the first time since mid-May. The rise is concentrated in the country's three largest cities, Amsterdam, Rotterdam and The Hague. In Haag-London Health Board area, which includes The Hague, the positive test rate jumped to 7.4%. The number of hospital patients and deaths remains low, and the government is not planning further nationwide measures. However, Health Minister Hugo de Jonge said local restrictions may be needed in the larger cities if the numbers keep going up. Is it, do we know why the cases are increasing? Um, well, there's a number of theories. Uh, the greatest number of infections is in the young, that's people between 20 and 30. So it could be connected with the fact that students are going back to university. And of course, um, some are starting university. They're meeting new people. They're mingling a lot um, and infecting each other. Yeah, uh, that's also definitely the case in, in Delft, where we saw yeah. uh, a large number of, uh, of, yeah, where we saw a lot of rising patients as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, quite a few of the hotspots are in university towns um, and and cities. Uh, I know uh, th- th- this morning, Friday morning, uh, it was announced that one of the university fraternities in Groningen, um, I think called Navigator, has, uh, has has had about a dozen cases. So that's one thing. Um, it's also thought to be why fewer people are being admitted to intensive care and dying from COVID-19, because young people in good health generally don't uh, develop such severe symptoms as older people. Um, they've also, also of course, the schools have gone back, um, and lots of um, the, 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 there's been a number of um, cases of infections either among children or more commonly among teachers. Um, about 130 schools have had a case of COVID in the um, well in, in the four four weeks to, to, since uh, some schools started going back. And there's also been a number of outbreaks in nursing homes, uh, although, again, still far fewer than at the start of the pandemic. I guess in general, uh, we should say these numbers, uh, although they're getting up close to the numbers we had in May, are, aren't really comparable because back in May we were doing far fewer tests, far less testing. We were getting yeah. about a 30, 30% positive test rate, uh, whereas now it's around about 3%. Um, so the fact that we have more known infections doesn't mean we actually have more infections, if, if, if yeah. you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, worth noting, too, that while a lot of people support the government's rules when you ask them, a lot of them are not really following them in practice. So the RFM does a week, does a regular survey about every six weeks of people's attitudes and behaviour, and they found that 84% of people agreed that if you had COVID symptoms, you should stay home. However, 9 in 10 people, when they were pressed, admitted that they'd been shopping when they were feeling ill, 64% visited friends or family, 43% went to work, and 41% went out for a drink or a meal. Those so, are some staggering percentages. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a big clue as to why you know the the, the virus is continuing to spread because people say they 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 they, uh, they agree with the rules but don't actually apply them to, to themselves. Yeah, the they rules, they rules feel, for other people. Yeah, rules for other people. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and there's also been some problems with the testing, right? 
Uh, yes, yeah, so there's uh, mainly with just a, a, a big rise in demand for testing, uh, which the health boards and the laboratories um, who process the tests are, are struggling to cope with. Uh, test, um, the number of tests carried out went up by 10% in the past week, but there's a limit of 30,000 tests a day. Um, that's the capacity, and we're getting quite close to it. Um, oh. Anecdotally, it's, uh, there's a lot of... Um, evidence that people are having to wait longer for their test results. They're supposed to come back in 48 hours. Uh, a lot of uh, laboratories aren't able to do that. And that's having knock-on effects. So, for example, if a teacher te um, goes for a coronavirus test, uh, he or she has to stay at home while they wait for the results. And that means, of course, there's no one to teach the class. So right. either they have to find another teacher, or in some cases, children are being sent home. Uh, one school board in Amstelfein has actually started paying for private tests for its staff because they've decided that's less disruptive than having to join the queue for the KK Day tests. Okay, and um, are they able to increase the capacity uh, soon? No, or? no, 30,000 really is the limit at the moment, unless they have more laboratories, I think. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, that's as much as they can do with the, with the current uh, facilities. Yeah, and um, there was also some talk about um, uh, asking laboratories in Germany to uh, to process yeah. some of the tests. It could also mean that the tests uh, uh, results uh, are available later uh, than the promised forty eight hours. So yeah, yeah, uh, indeed. So this is going to be a problem as we get into the autumn and uh, more people get colds and sniffles and apply oh, yeah, tests. Of course, yeah. Indeed. And of course, you keep getting the advice changing about whether you should go for a test. Sometimes it's uh, the ministers have said everybody should get tested if they're worried, um, even if you're not symptomatic. Other times they said you should only get a test if you if you actually feel sick. So there's a lot of confusion about at what point. Um, you should be tested. And yeah, I know, I know certainly in schools as well. I mean, some schools are very strict about if if there's a hint of a sniff by a pupil that's sent home. Other schools say you know that that, that you'll only be you only have to stay off school if you're actually coughing and spluttering and showing known COVID symptoms. Uh, we already uh, talked about a little bit uh, in the Opeth of the Week segment. Princess Dog is coming up, uh, the podcast's uh, favorite day. Uh, mm -hmm. Formally speaking, the new parliamentary year is opened on that day, but that is just the least important aspect. Uh, the day is filled with pomp, ceremony and traditions. Uh, but this year, due to the corona pandemic, the day will probably be dressed down significantly compared to other years. Uh, mm. To start with, the king uh, will not travel the whopping 200 meters from uh, his palace <laughs> to the Binnenhof by uh, his usual royal carriage but instead go to the Grote Kerk in The Hague by car yeah I can say even the Grote Kerk is not much further away from the Binnenhof I mean no uh, I think also 200 meters further I yeah, think, probably twice like as far, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but he's, he's still going to go by car. And and the the, the public is also uh, banned from the city centre, so it will be a really mm -hmm. uh, it will be a very empty uh, empty city uh, on that day. I know it'll be strange because usually it's on it, the whole thing's on live television. There's big crowds of people wearing orange hats, and you know it's a, the, 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 there's a lot of pomp and ceremony, and the, you, have the, you have the horse drawn um, yeah uh, carriages and the police horses all uh, clustering through the city. And now it's going to be none of that, really. It's going to be very quiet and quite eerie. Yeah, yeah. So uh, mm. it will be a strange day, uh, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, but in the Grote Kerk, uh, the king will deliver his speech from the throne to a to the gathered MPs, uh, who will do their best not to fall asleep uh, during mm. the speech. It's al always fun to, to, to look around during the speech to see all the MPs and spot the MPs yeah. who are falling asleep. <laughs> um, another tradition is that these MPs will be dressed up at their finest, or at least uh, the women will be, uh, they will try to wear the most ridiculous hats uh, they can find. Uh, it's so, sort of a competition between them, right? Mm -hmm. To uh, who will who will uh, who will draw the most attention with, uh, yeah. with her hats? Well, well, it's, it's, it hasn't been a competition in recent years because it's always been Mariana Tima, right? Because she, she turns up in like dresses made of. Uh... Uh, um, made of meat and all that kind of thing. Yeah, something. Oh, it's so. always something like that. But that yeah. she uh, did she wear hats? Yeah, she also wear hats. But she her yeah. her outfits were remarkable. Not specifically her hat. And not specifically the hats. No. So uh, there's still some competition for the other MPs. Mm. Um, and this is supposed to the male MPs who always look uh, like they did their best to find the cheapest rental suit. Um, after the King's speech uh, with the government's plans for the upcoming year, Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra will go to the Tweede Kamer with his uh, famous briefcase. Indeed. Uh, 
In it, he carries uh, the government's budget proposals, which he will hand over to the uh, Tweede Kamer chair. Uh, the next uh, two days after that, on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, the MPs will discuss the budget with the cabinet in the most uh, important debate of the year uh, called the Algemene Politieke Beschouwingen. And mm-hmm. as I was writing this last night, I was too tired to find a uh, translation for that. Yeah, uh, there's, yeah, there's not really no. an, an exact translation anyway. It's just a sort of general debate on the, the on the government's program for the year. Yeah, that's it's, what uh, it means. But yeah. It's, yeah, but obviously because it's uh, we've got the election coming up uh, in March, uh, it's going to have a bit. That's going to add a bit of extra spice, um, I think. And all the parties have got new leaders who will. Yeah. Well, so that, um, some of them will want to uh, um, to kind of stand out. Obviously, Sigrid Kark is a minister in the cabinet, so she uh, she can't. But uh, some of the others. <clears throat> some of the other part, yeah, some of the other opposition leaders, I think, will be looking to score points and, uh, um, yeah, um, uh, and, and, and set out the stall for the election campaign. So yeah, that'll definitely. be interesting to follow. Yeah. It's uh, it's always a fun debate um, because all the all the political uh, leaders are debating with the cabinet. So it is really the most well known politicians debating with each other. Uh, yeah. As we said, the debate is about. Uh, is a general debate, so it can be about everything, and that mm-hmm. sometimes uh, makes it more fun as well. Than because when they are debating one of these technical issues, you know, then uh, yeah. uh, it's it's not always that interesting. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Also, usually. At this debate, the whole chamber is packed with MPs. Every MP is present. Yeah. All the ministers are present as well, even though the ministers and all the uh, backbenchers are not participating in the debate. Um, mm-hmm. But that will also be different because of Corona, of course. Yes. So um, that uh, that too will be a, a, a different side. Yeah, indeed, that'd be interesting. And of course, uh, one of the other many great traditions of Budget Day is the is is the leaking of the of the budget ahead of Prince's Duff, yeah. where uh, every year they try and uh, uh, um, tighten up the security of the um, because MPs are given a, a pre or the, uh, they're, they're given the, um, uh, the the budget plans uh, in advance. I think about forty eight hours in advance, and every year they try and tighten up the security so it's impossible to leak. And of course, every year, um, sure enough, uh, it all gets leaked to the newspapers. Uh, so does that happen this year as well? Uh, not yet, or at least not the entire budget is leaked yet, but mm-hmm. some of the uh, plans already are. Uh, not so much as in previous years. Uh, it has never been proven, but I think that the, the cabinet usually strategically leaks bits of good news in the days before Prince's Dog or in the weeks before Prince's Dog. But my theory is that mm-hmm. there's just not so much good news now. So yeah. uh, the leaking uh, has been um, uh, decreased uh, this yeah. year. Yeah, scaled uh, back. RTL News uh, is the champion of Prinsjesdag leaks. Uh, yeah. They did get a hold on the economic forecasts. Uh, the figures are slightly more optimistic than those published a couple of months earlier. They, um, the figures show the economy will contract by 5% this year, but will grow in 2021 by 3.5%. Also, the unemployment will reach 5.8%, but spending power will rise by an average of uh, 0.8%. Uh, right. Which is surprising, actually, if the employment is rising, uh, uh, yeah. unemployment is rising and uh, the economy is um, shrinking. Uh, how can yeah. spending power yeah. rise? But OK. Uh, also, one of the traditions of Prinsjesdag are the uh, koopkrachtplaatjes, of course. The, of course. Uh, yes, that's the other thing. The yeah. spending yeah, power. Yeah, these detailed and very exact, very exact predictions. Yeah, these sort of had, um, uh, the illustrations of, um, you know, of spending power or disposable income. Yeah, how, how much each each group in society, each age group, and whether you're whether you've got children or not, whether you're with a partner or not, and this breaks it down into how much. Um, your how much yeah how much your available income will increase um, to the nearest uh, tenth of a percent. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and it's lovely to see the absolute faith that. The Dutch media have in the accuracy of these figures. Yeah, even, even though, though in all these reports <laughs> they always start with these are averages of averages. These are yeah, exactly. uh, this is yeah. all purely theoretical. If nothing yeah. happens, then this will be the case. Even though, of course, yeah. a lot will happen. So yeah, it's, yeah, and uh, then and however the budget is configured, they always some somehow find a way to engineer the corporate pledges so that everybody is better off. Yeah, in, on on paper. Yeah, yeah, and what's yeah. also fun—it's—it's uh, it's not. It used to be a tradition is that all the opposition parties would write a counter budget and send it to yeah. one of the 
planning agencies will uh, calculate the effects on the economy and yeah. um, and then the the politicians will fight my spending power will rise with 0.9 percent while the yeah. cabinet's uh, spending <laughs> power will rise with 0.8 percent and then they have this fight again um, uh, yeah. over all these um, uh, tens yeah. of percentages yeah so, so, so the, 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 yeah they basically spend days just arguing about uh, imaginary numbers yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's exactly it's amazing. What, uh, what, what they are doing <laughs> um yeah i'm uh, and and all these uh, uh what i always like is that these uh, uh plaatjes are broken down to uh ver- yeah very detailed right so if you yes, are yeah. if you are a man uh, uh age 25 and you like bami schrijven then your spending power mm. will do this and <laughs> yeah so um yeah and it's always uh, interesting to see but it's all conditional on um uh, the, the the assumption that we're not going to go back into lockdown even though the uh, coronavirus numbers are escalating right now. The, you know, l- large parts of the country did shut down for about three months. You know, the, you couldn't you, you couldn't go out for um, you know, the, the, the whole catering sector basically yeah. shut down. The, uh, there was no tourism, which is a huge industry these days. I think given that that happened, a five percent contraction is actually not too bad. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, and there were also some uh, other plans leaked uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago. Um, for example, the plan to reduce the basic income tax and corporation tax for small businesses too. Um, and healthcare workers will get an additional 500 euro bonus in 2021 on top of an earlier bonus uh, of 1000 euros uh, this year. So those are right. other plans that were leaked. The Netherlands has agreed to take in 100 refugees stranded on the Greek island of Lesbos after the Moria refugee camp burnt down this week. That was the outcome of an emergency debate held in Parliament on Thursday. The group is made up of 50 underage asylum seekers and 50 close family members. Junior Justice Minister Anki Bukas Knoll said the cabinet was making a one-off exception for the victims of the disaster and on the face of it it was a u-turn on her previous position on wednesday when she insisted that the dutch government would not take any refugees from the fire however there was a sting in the tail because the fefe day only backed the deal on condition that we basically do a quid pro quo deal where the number of refugees that they take in under un supervision next year is cut from 500 to 400 so basically the net number of refugees taken in is zero yeah uh uh, this led to uh, to a lot of ophef um, uh, in uh, in the Netherlands yesterday when this when this mm-hmm. plan was announced. There was already ophef when um, the minister said they were not going to take any refugees um, yeah. in the country, and then uh, this number of one hundred seems to be very. Yeah, very Pretty arbitrary, really. Arbitrary, yeah. but also, yeah, uh, it's so little. What difference does it make already, right? It's it's almost as if you you tip your waiter five cents. I yeah, mean, if you. It's kind of like a. Yeah, it's like a token. I mean, the, the, even the 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 the, the day, I think, uh, uh, described it as a gesture. But it, it, was, it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty meager gesture, really, in the wider scheme of things, especially as it's being uh, taken off um, the total number of uh, refugees. So the actual responsibility of the country um, to take refugees in has not um, is not affected. Yeah, and uh, there was also some, uh, I saw some questions by uh, Femke Merel van Kote Arissen, uh, one of the um, mm. uh, uh, Zetelroof MPs, and she yes. she pointed out that uh, there she had some questions about the legality of, of that uh, arrangement, because these um, uh, UN refugees, they already have a status, so you couldn't mm. uh, take that away from them. So, yeah, there were some, some questions about that, too. I, I didn't really know what the answer of the minister was but yeah there, there are some uh, serious doubts about uh, mm-hmm. this plan um yeah and what did yeah, they're, they're, uh, i guess they'll say that um that, uh, that although they're um they're, they're going back on their word the un they're doing it in a limited and very specific way so it's all right <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> uh what did the uh, other opposition parties have to say about this um, in a word, they were fuming. Um, the, the, the Labour Party, uh, Atikauken, called it a bitter deal. Uh, the Socialist Party denounced it as horse trading, uh, or kuhandel in Dutch, uh, cow trading. Yeah. In uh, the GroenLinks, elder statesman Bram van Oyek said it was a trade-off, not a deal. He said hundreds of vulnerable people in Lebanon and Sudan are being swapped for hundreds of vulnerable people in Greece. Um, another thing that's raised the hackles of the opposition was that Feve Day, uh, in the course of agreeing this, uh, um, this deal, managed to sneak in a few new rules uh, on the asylum system designed to speed it up um, and uh, make it easier to re- remove 
the right to stay of refugees uh, who commit crimes. So this is people who've been given permission to stay in the country, they then commit an offence, and um, it's going to be easier to to send them uh, send them back home. Um, the left wing opposition were particularly furious at the minor coalition parties, like the Chris and Nuni, for caving in to the favourite day's demands. Uh, they accused Desis Zestas, new leader Sigrid Kach, of failing to show moral leadership uh, after she'd given a speech at the weekend accepting the leadership of the party, where she said the Netherlands should show more moral leadership in international affairs. Yeah. Obviously, a compl- complicating factor for her is that she is a minister in the cabinet um, at the moment as well, so she's got to wear two hats and really, um, yeah, I think it was. Uh, kind of a bit compromised uh, there. Yeah, because her position as the D66 leader is completely different from her position as a minister. As a minister, she yeah. has to um, uh, uh, communicate the cabinet's position, and that's, of course, uh, a um, uh, uh, compromise between these four coalition parties of which her party is, uh, is a member of. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, but it's a little bit awkward for her politically speaking, of course. Uh, if it if is. she has it's this speech, uh, the, the one day and the next day she um, she arranges such a deal, which uh, doesn't show very much moral leadership. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't doesn't give, it doesn't do her much credit, yeah. uh, to be honest. But yeah, but in, in general, I think the feeling was among the opposition certainly it was a pretty cynical exercise uh, by the cabinet and a kind of a token gesture. But of course, it was also the other um, opposition parties at the PVV who are against bringing in any um, refugees at all. And so they denounced uh, the coalition and the favorite day of being brought to their knees uh, by these uh, you know, the, the, the demands. Obviously, the, 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 the nationalist parties think that we shouldn't bring the refugees in because they burnt the, they were the ones who burnt the camp down in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So nobody's happy, basically. I'm sure this will be a topic that will um, uh, will be one of the main topics of the uh, of the debate on uh, on Wednesday on Thursday. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think this is going to run and run, and um, yeah, it, it is definitely kind of going to come back up during the the, the post budget debate. Yeah, indeed. Sigrid Kaag has been chosen as the new leader of Liberal Democratic Party D66 and she will lead the party into the 2021 general elections in March. Kaag, who left a career as a top diplomat at the UN and is currently the trade minister in the cabinet, was elected with 95.7% of the votes, a percentage the average dictator (laughs) would be jealous of. Uh, her name had circulated as a potential leader since Alexander Pechtold stood down in 2018. Rob Jetter has led the party since then, but he decided in June not to stand for the leadership. Kaag has said she decided to run for the party leadership in order to become the first female prime minister of the Netherlands, which will be a challenge given that Deze Sester is currently polling as the sixth largest party and that the election is not a prime ministerial election, but a Tweede Kamer election. Indeed. But uh, ambitious of her. So 95.7%, a, a Stalin-esque um, majority <laughs> yeah. of Who did the other 4.3% vote for? Do you really want to know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Of course do. we do. She had only one competitor, political nobody Ton Visser. Uh, when he announced that he was taking it up against Sigrid Kaag, he immediately turned into a sort of cult figure because he's a <laughs> former taxi driver and a school teacher from us. So he couldn't be more different than career diplomat uh, Sigrid Kaag. Um, yeah. Based on his tweets and Facebook posts, he seemed to be a very nice man. But an interview with NSA a couple of weeks ago um, yeah, was uh, very, uh, let's say, <laughs> revealing. Uh, in it, he described himself as godforsaken lazy and he confessed uh, to be an international currency forger. <laughs> he described uh, his scheme, uh, how he travels around the world to copy Syrian and Israeli money and uh, how it is supposed to be legal. Um, it was already clear that his chances were somewhere between non-existent and zero, but the interviewer <laughs> yeah, really only confirmed this. Yeah, indeed. He was also handicapped by the fact that he doesn't actually live in the Netherlands because no. he, he works in China and he, he couldn't come to the country to campaign because of the corona <laughs> restrictions. Oh, really? But, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think he wouldn't have done anyway to be honest so yeah it was uh, it was a slightly bizarre thing to do it reminded um, me a bit of um of, <laughs> of when um, um the uk prime minister is up for for re-election then there is yeah. always 
I believe Lord Buckethead and and Elmo, yes. who are also uh, one of the competitors. Yeah, exactly. You always have um, the joke candidates kind of flock to his constituency because they know they'll be on the television. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it reminded me more actually of the episode of uh, Blackadder where Baldrick stands as a candidate in, in, in the election, but he actually gets elected to Parliament. Yeah, Ton uh, Ton Fisher was a little bit less successful. Um. Okay, so Sigrid Kaag was uh, unsurprisingly elected, and uh, she then uh, delivered her acceptance speech. Uh, what were the highlights? Yeah, she she talked about a very uh, internationalist vision for the Netherlands. Uh, she said the Netherlands should be a heavyweight on the global stage, and prosperity would come from international trade and also strengthening European cooperation. The next day, she appeared in politics show Buitenhof, where she ruled out a coalition between her party and Geert Wilders' uh, PVV, or Thierry Baudet's uh, Forum for Democracy. These parties were very angry about that, even though I can't see any future where these parties will ever work together with each other. Yeah. I believe Thierry Baudet once said that, um, among other parties, Deze Sester is out to destroy the Netherlands. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, but he says about every party. He, he said that about, about every party. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's uh, effectively ruling out that party uh, uh, for a possible coalition, yeah. in my view as well. Effectively, by saying that, he also ruled out the DSS party himself for a possible coalition. So I can't really see why they are mad about that. Also, her position on European integration uh, is, is diametrically opposed to that of Geert Wilders or Thierry Baudet. So yeah, I, I cannot yeah. see... A coalition uh, between them anyway so no yeah, yeah i think it was that, that, that idea was dead in the water already and she's just confirming it and also on issues like climate change yeah the, the two parties absolutely pulls apart indeed yeah and we already touched upon it a little bit in the previous topic uh, she also called for more moral leadership in the netherlands uh, and uh, yeah that became a little bit awkward given the refugee yeah. deal that uh, that came over yeah. a few days uh, later yeah yeah, so, this is, so the first test of moral leadership was uh, kind of quite comprehensively failed. Yeah, especially um, because she's personally responsible for that deal. She is one of the international ministers, so um, yeah, it makes it a little bit politically awkward for her. That is difficult, isn't it? Because yeah, she's now the person who has to sell that deal um, to Parliament yeah. when it gets when it comes up for debate. Um, so it's going to be yeah, a really awkward uh, position to be in. I mean, Desta Zestek has always been, under Alexander Pachtold as well, the party that set itself up directly against um, the nationalist parties like the PVV and uh, Forum for Democracy and promoted itself as the internationalist party. So she, she's really kind of uh, cementing, continuing that tradition. Yeah, indeed. I believe yeah. when Desa Sester polled the highest number of seats, that was around 30 seats, around, uh, and that was in 2015, yeah. that was mainly because De Alexander Pechtold then was actively opposing Geert Wilders. They, they were mm. sort of involved in a rivalry against each other. It, it, and it yeah. led to this high uh, polling of, of Deza Sester. Also, Geert Wilders um, benefits from that as well. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, this is one of those classic scenarios where this kind of very vocal opposition uh, benefits both sides. Yeah. Uh, in the same way when Rutte and uh, Baudet had had their televised head-to-head uh, -head debate. It boosted both their ratings. Yeah, indeed. It was, it was interesting given that one of the other points that she raised in her speech was she was against piling politics yeah. politics driven <laughs> by opinion polls. Yeah. When, uh, when did we accuse politicians of hypocrisy, yeah. right? If you appreciate our efforts to keep this podcast on the road like a slave-drawn carriage uh, crossing the <laughs> market square in Delft, you can now sponsor us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our exclusive summer special edition, a shout-out on the next podcast, and a smug sense of satisfaction. This week, we welcome four new patrons, three from over the summer break. First up, we say thank you to Nikki Stambolzieva, uh, all the way from Bulgaria. I do apologise for mangling your name. Nikki, she says, quote, In the last few years, I've been a frequent visitor to the Netherlands and lately also a sporadic marathon listener to your podcasts. Love your fresh outlook on the daily events and a little bit of context you always give, which help bring some sense to a world and a set of problems that can sometimes be so different from the ones around here. So thank you very much, uh, Nikki, and I hope you're keeping uh, well and safe in Bulgaria. Next up is uh, Diego Fernando Carrion, who's from Seattle. He describes himself as an Ecuadorian-American who, who moved from Silicon Valley to Amsterdam for work. So uh, an economic migrant, which I say also is an economic <laughs> migrant. Uh, he says... I've been here a couple of years now, and I'm thankful that I managed to find your podcast early on, as it really helped me learn a lot and keep up to date with the news before I could almost read any Dutch. So, nice to help you out there, uh, Diego. 
Then we have another American, Rick, who's from the Boston area and, in his own words, escaped the Trump regime with his wife and fled to Harlem mm. about two years ago. He has a question for us, uh, or for Molly and me, actually. He says, um, as native English speakers, what was the most effective method that you found um, to become fluent in Dutch? So, uh, well, in the absence of Molly, I'd have to say um, what I said before on previous podcasts, which is basically um, I always found like uh, uh, watching uh, really bad soap operas <laughs> on the television with subtitles was really good because the dialogue is so simple. Which one did you? Which one did you watch? Uh, the Bold and the Beautiful a lot. Oh, the, the American uh, soap opera. Yeah, exactly. You watch it, but you've got Dutch subtitles. Yeah. You, know, you don't need to worry about following the storyline or the characters or anything like that. So you can purely just focus on the language, which is also very simple. And so you work out, you, you get a good kind of basic vocabulary just from reading the subtitles. Yeah. yeah I found that yeah. was one thing. And also like reading comic books. Um, but also I had the advantage, I think, that um, uh, my wife um, was from the provinces. She was from Drenthe, where people don't automatically switch to English when they talk to you. Um, and that helped a lot as well. So you had to learn Dutch in order to uh, to get along in in Drenthe, yeah. Well, I had to learn Drenthe really, which is a whole, was a whole different ball game. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend language, that. Wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> but uh, that's going that's going to be extreme. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you find that if if you're in the big cities where people bump into tourists every day and just use English in their work, the the threshold is quite high to speak Dutch because people naturally just switch. The plus side of, of living in the Netherlands is that you can be direct, so you can just tell uh, anyone who is switching to English, please talk yeah. Dutch to me because I want that to learn That is the other it. thing. Yeah, that, that, that is actually a good tip. Just literally say, um, please, I would like to speak Dutch and crack on. I think Americans are probably better at doing that than British people. My tip is to watch the Jeugdjournaal. Yes. Which is a news broadcast uh, specifically aimed for younger people, mm -hmm. but they explain international topics in really understandable language. And if you are new to the to the language, then that can definitely help with building your vocabulary and also understanding sentences and uh, grammar. And um, so that's uh, that's always really useful to to watch that. I think. And finally, we say welcome and thank you to Cheryl Tilly, who doesn't have any comments or questions, but uh, we appreciate your support just the same as everybody else. If you'd like to join our growing band of patrons, log on to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. PVV leader Geert Wilders has again been found guilty of group insult for leading a crowd in an anti-Moroccan chant at an election rally in 2014. He was not guilty of inciting hatred or discrimination. The crime of groepsbelediging or group insult means deliberately insulting a group of people because of their race, religion and, interestingly enough, also their nationality, uh, the court said in its uh, verdict. Appeal court judges at the Schiphol Airport High Security Court said on Friday that Wilders deliberately insulted the Moroccan people with the pre-orchestrated chanting in front of television cameras. While politicians should be able to make statements which can be seen as shocking and upsetting, quote, a politician also has special responsibilities and freedom of speech has its limits. The verdict is a uh, partial victory for Wilders, who was found guilty on the accounts of uh, insulting a group of people and of racial discrimination by a lower court in 2016. As in the previous case, the court said Wilders would not face any punishment because he is already paying a high price for his comments as a democratically chosen politician. Wilders is the only politician in the Netherlands who receives round-the-clock police protection. Okay, so uh, how did Wilders respond to this verdict? He was uh, fine with it. He said, uh, I accept it, we will move on. Yeah. No, he said uh, the Netherlands is a uh, corrupt country and that he plans to appeal. Wilders and his legal team have consistently described the trial as political. The appeal at times focused more on his claims of interference by the justice minister of the day than on the chanting itself. There were emails showing that senior ministry officials kept abreast of progress and made suggestions about how the public prosecutor should proceed with the case. But the prosecution department has always said that it was not influenced. Uh, and made its own decisions. Uh, the court dismissed that the trial was political. Uh, it had been up to the department and not the ministry to press ahead with the prosecution, the court said in its ruling. So, I mean, this basically is the best possible outcome for Kate Builders, isn't it? Because on the one hand, he has his, uh, the offence is reduced because um, the, 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 the incitement of hatred and discrimination has now been quashed. But on the other hand, he still has a guilty verdict, which means, of course, he can appeal and string the whole thing out. It's been going on six years now, this trial. Yeah. And it, it's ironic to hear Builders complain about this being a politicised trial when it's basically become um, a kind of political campaign tool for him. Because the longer he can keep this uh, trial 
going, um, the more political capital he gets out of it. True, but I do think he has a point there because these emails which were leaked really shows that there was some communication between uh, the minister yeah. and the public prosecutor. Why is the, is the minister asking about it and why is he making suggestions uh, regarding the prosecution? So I, I do think he has a point there when he says it is a, uh, a more or less political trial. Even though it's only political yeah. in a limited sense, but there were communications, there were discussions. So I do think he has a point here. Up to a point, yeah. I, mean, I think the fact there are recommendations from the minister, that seems a bit um, alarming. And uh, you don't want that kind of interference in the, in the justice process by by politicians. But on, on, on the other hand, it's, it's inevitable, I think, when a political party leader um, uh, is taken to court over things he says on the election campaign, that it's going to have a political dimension. But I think Wilders is, uh, has just as much a stake in politicizing the trial as as anybody else if not more so that's definitely true yeah yeah he's going to uh, to bring uh, he's going to appeal so yes yeah, hopefully it will not uh, take another three and a half years because you know six and a half years is just really a lot for for one one sentence it is it's yeah. just silly really so it rumbles on also rumbling on is the stream of uh, Brits coming to the Netherlands. <laughs> 320 years after William III and his court travelled to England in a friendly invasion, thousands of UK citizens have repaid the gesture by moving to the Netherlands and sometimes taking Dutch citizenship. The British population has increased by 10,000 in the four years since the Brexit referendum and now stands at just over 95,000, more than half of whom are first-generation migrants. Curiously, you never hear the Pei Fei Fei talking about them. Uh, no, I think that's because uh, Geert Wilders is, uh, is such a fan of fried fish. Clearly, yeah. yeah. Last year, 2,500 UK nationals acquired a Dutch passport and another 666. There's a startling figure, have done so in the first <laughs> half of this year. That can be a coincidence. It can't be. No. I, don't, I don't believe that. 80% of them have made use of what's called the OPSI route that enables them to remain British citizens. Dutch citizens living in the UK who want to protect their rights as residents are now able to take dual citizenship after the law was changed over the summer, but that rule does not extend to Brits living in the Netherlands. Do you have a, a Dutch passport yet or not? No, I don't, uh, but my children do. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm going to the uh, IND next week uh, to have my fingerprints taken like a common <laughs> criminal. <laughs> I'm very, very resentful about it. But, uh, Will you yeah, have I'm, to make uh, mug shots as well, or uh... probably? Yeah, I have to hold up one of those numbers on the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we will you be interrogated by the IND with a uh, spotlight uh, yeah. shining in your face. Probably, yeah. Any difficult questions, I'll, I'll just use the phrase in a, in a limited and very restricted way. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. Or just ask way. for a barbieschijf and everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll eat a barbieschijf in front of them and then they'll have to give me citizenship. <laughs> yeah, because there's no way anybody who doesn't want to live in the Netherlands will eat that thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge sacrifice. Yeah. This is just to get my permanent residency. Hmm. For a passport, I have to do even more extreme things like, um, I don't know, um, eat, eat a car souffle. <laughs> While it's still uh, fresh from the deep fryer. Exactly, or eat bitter bollen straight out of the oven <laughs> yeah. and, and burn my mouth. The burning uh, of cassoufles are worse than bitter bollen, I think. Oh, right. So be careful with them. The body of a second bottlenose whale was washed up on the Dutch coast near Borsele in Zeeland. A bottlenose adult and calf were first spotted three weeks ago in the Oosterschelde and an adult was found dead near Terneuze on Monday, leading officials to think the second body may be its calf. However, SOS Dolphin, a charity for saving uh, dolphins and other sea animals, now says the second whale would appear to have been about four meters long if the body had been complete. I'm really wondering why the whale that washed ashore had been uh, cut in half, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. not something they explained. Uh, but its length, its likely length, indicates that it had been uh, probably been an adult, so not a calf. So more research right. is uh, being carried out at uh, Utrecht University. Uh, bottlenose whales normally live in much deeper waters of the Atlantic Ocean. The last time a bottlenose uh, washed up in the Netherlands was in 1993, but there is a worrying rise in beachings around the UK and Ireland already. In, in late August, for example, six bottlenose whales died after stranding on a beach in Donegal in Ireland, and uh, experts have suggested the beachings could be due to military sonar exercises. And that's not the only dead animal news we got this week, right? No. 
a no this is the best story of the week really it's a very sad story gordon <laughs> it is very sad as well but it's yeah, a good story that's true yeah a ballooning company from schijndel in brabant has been told by a court to pay 68,000 euros in compensation to a parrot collector for killing three rare birds the birds literally died of fright when a uh, hot air balloon sailed by just 50 meters from the bird cage the balloonist fired up the balloon's main burner and uh, the birds died from fright. That's basically what happened. Right. And now that was decided in an autopsy report by um, a, by a vet, I believe. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't, it, the, the birds weren't interviewed afterwards, or one of the other birds no, that survived no, exactly, wasn't. Yeah. I, they, they could have done it because it's a parrot, of course. They could just ask the parrot what what happened and then uh, one could would could explain what what yeah. exactly happened so the noise of the blast caused the animals uh, worth tens or thousands of euros so much stress that they died a uh, brabant mm. court had established earlier that the birds had died of stress but so far the guilty party had not been identified but luckily the balloon's uh, positions are recorded and height and mm -hmm. distance data showed it was a ballooning company from schijndel that had come closest to the cage and that the balloon was only 15 meters from the ground so I'm not sure what exactly the distance is, if it's 50 meters or 15 meters, or if there's a, some sort of um, a mix up between 15 and 50. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but the, the balloon was very yeah. close by. This came to court because the insurers refused to pay out. Um, and one of the reasons they refused to pay out was that this was a balloon competition. So there were other balloons in the sky mm. and the insurer said, well, it could have been any of these five balloons. That, uh, that sailed uh, close to the parrot cage. So they actually used Pythagoras' theorem in court yeah. to decide which balloon was closest. So basically working out how far it was, uh, how high they were above the ground, how far they were from the building, and then they calculated the hypotenuse between those two, and that was how they worked out which balloon was closest. Yeah, even so though, I, I even though if this balloon is 15 meters away from the birdcage, then it's not that yeah. difficult to determine which balloon it was. I would say, I yeah. would say, and and knowing how bad lawyers are at math, um, I think it, <laughs> they would have been a very hard time explaining what exactly it was and how you calculate it. But okay, the deceased parrots included a forty thousand pair of hyacinth macaws and a yellow named Amazon worth twelve hundred and fifty euros. The compensation package which is more than the than the value of these birds, includes a 14,000 euros uh, of this uh, potential sale of any young uh, the parrots uh, might have produced. So, um, okay. yeah, that's uh, also something the court uh, took into account. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the parrots uh, might have engaged with each other and uh, produced more parrots. Yeah. Yeah, the other detail that was, uh, I found interesting in this story was, do you know what name was on the side of the balloon? No. It was uh, the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> it was deemed to be the culprit so yeah <laughs> well now it's the phantom of the parrots indeed yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah so they might have to rewrite um, that that stage musical now to include some parrots yeah yeah I, then I, then I, probably i would be interested to see it yeah i would be curious to see how they would pull off uh, a, a balloon <laughs> on stage yeah and then, then, then yeah, and also pull off some dead parrots yeah. without actually obviously because you, you couldn't do it for real so they'd have to no 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 yeah of, or they have to buy uh for every show they have to buy a new parrot but then uh yeah then we will know for certain it will not uh, run as long as Goldaat van Oranje and finally the sports news because football returned this month with the Rubik's Cube that is the Nations League tournament um which nobody understands. <laughs> no. It also kicked off uh, Dwight Lodeweger's stint as interim manager of the Dutch national football team. Stefan Bergwijn's goal was enough to see off Poland 1-0 in the arena last Friday, but on Monday night, Oranje went down by the same scoreline to Italy, thanks to Nicolo Borella's header. Lodeweger's acknowledged that the scoreline could have been worse and the Dutch had lost to a very good team. Captain Ferger van Dijk uh, was also pretty scathing. He said the first half in particular was moderate to bad. The next match is against Bosnia and Herzegovina on October the 11th, and this weekend also sees the return of the Eredivisie after a six-month absence. Heerenveen and Willem II have the honour of kicking off the new season on Saturday evening in front of a reduced crowd who aren't allowed to sing or cheer, so uh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Ian Robbins' first competitive match in a Groningen shirt in 18 years is going to be against one of his former clubs, PSV Eindhoven. And champions Ajax and Feyenoord are also starting their seasons with away fixtures against Sparta Rotterdam and Pek Zwolle, respectively. Yeah, hopefully no, nobody will sail a hot air balloon uh, 50 meters away from Arjen Robben because he will definitely be injured <laughs> exactly. by that. But he'll definitely just fall down yeah, if the balloon gets anywhere <laughs> near him. Um, have you been watching the Tour de France? 
Uh, no, when it's uh, during the summer, I sometimes watch it. My father is a huge uh, uh, cyclist fan, so he always watches oh, it. Okay. Or actually, he falls asleep while watching it. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I catch a moment or two uh, of it. I, I yeah. like the Tour de France because it's also a sort of a um, documentary, right? They show uh, yeah. images of, 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 the, of the French countryside and of uh, ancient chateaus and of nice villages. So uh, yeah. that makes it fun to watch. But I, I'm not a fan of, of cycling, so I, I don't watch it for the sports. Yeah, so if you fall asleep during a stage of Tour de France as well, it goes on for four hours. But actually, quite often only the last five minutes, uh, the only bit where anything interesting happens. So well, if you're going to fall asleep in front of a sport, the Tour de France is a good choice. What, what I always find interesting is that uh, the, the broadcast of a Tour de France stage uh, starts yeah. uh, one and a half hours after it has started. Yes. So the first one and a half hours, they don't even bother to, to, to broadcast because nothing happens no. anyway. So I always exactly. find it very interesting that apparently the sport is so boring <laughs> that you are able to not broadcast one third of it. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you don't miss a thing. No. Uh, so yeah, the, the Tour de France has got another two weeks to run, so we'll uh, bring you an update. Uh, but basically, Tom Dumoulin is not going to win. No, that's uh, that's for sure. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating, and you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast, and you can ask us um, a question about anything at all. My thanks to Paul Peters, not to Molly Quell hiding out into Skelling. I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.